morning, everyone. So this morning, we're talking about some very practical matters in an unusual way. We're talking about our debt, the clothes we wear, and how we love others. For example, um, have you ever thought about the relationship between your debt and your ability to love other people? Most people think of debt as purely a financial matter. If you've been in a church for a while, if you are a Christian, you might tend to think of finances in a spiritual sense, as in, as a Christian, you contribute to the work of the church um, as part of your discipleship. After all, God owns it all, so it's a matter of stewardship. So that's how you think of finances in a spiritual sense. But I wonder if you've ever thought about debt as a practical matter of love. When the question is asked, why do you want to get out of debt, I'm not sure anyone answers so I can love people better. Right? Most times people want to get out of debt to reduce the stress that comes from being in a lot of debt. Nothing wrong at all about that. Makes a lot of sense. Some need to get out of one debt so that they can pay off more on another debt. If you're familiar with uh, Dave Ramsey, that's called the, the debt snowball. Some just want to handle their finances better. And others, if we're honest, they want to get out of one debt just so they can jump into another debt to get something else they really want, right? So for all the reasons there are to get out of debt, I'm not sure, though, I want to love people better ranks very high. But if you're listening to Emily, that is one application of what Paul's talking about here in Romans 13. Now, to be clear, there's a whole lot more that's going on in this passage. But Paul is riffing on the idea of debt and its relation to love. So here's, in essence, what Paul is saying in our text this morning. Owe no one anything so you can pay off your debt to love others. That's the point of verses 8 through 10. And the way to love others is to come dressed for the job as the time to do so has drawn near. That's the point of verses 11 through 14. Now, Paul's use of grammar helps identify his points. Paul uses two commands. They're called imperative verbs. In other words, these are commands. They're not obligate or they're not suggestions. They're not recommendations. This is what Paul says we ought to do. So if you're sitting here wanting to know the will of God for your life, here it is. It's very clear. Do these two things. There are two commands. One at the very beginning of our passage in verse 8, and then one comes in at the very end of our passage in verse 14. Honestly, actually, there's like two verbs in verse 14 that, that make the same point, but you get what I'm uh, talking about. Here's so here they are. The first verb, the first command is this, owe no one anything. And the second command is basically put on Christ, make no provision for the flesh. And in between these two commands is the call to love in light of the great day that is coming towards all humanity. And so these two verbs bookend Paul's topic this morning. So we're going to look at them one at a time. First, is, first, first verses 8 through 10, the debt of love. Now, I just want to say what this passage is not saying before I actually kind of get into what it is saying, because I have heard many times uh, people have pointed to this text amongst others to say Christians are not to have any kind of debt. After all, they reason. Paul literally says, owe no one anything. So Christians cannot have any kind of debt. But it's clear if you were here last week in verse 7 that Paul is not saying that because he just got through making the point that in this world, we are going to have obligations. And some of those are material obligations, taxes and revenue, and others are immaterial, honor and respect. And Paul says, we need to pay what is owed. 
So when we say, so basically what Paul is saying is pay our debts, right? That is what it means not to owe anyone. The point is not to not have debt, but to make good on all the obligations in life. If you owe a debt of money, you pay it. If you owe a debt of respect, you give it. That's the point of what he's getting at. Not to be a debtor to anyone in that they cannot hold the debt over you simply because you honor all the obligations in your life when they become due. That, that's really the point here. And furthermore, if Paul was trying to teach us that Christians should not be in any kind of debt, he couldn't make the larger point that he's getting to in this passage, and that is, in fact, we all live under a debt that we can never repay. Now, I'll get into that in a little bit, but let me just kind of nuance what I just said. I recognize that we live in a credit debt economy, so the, the danger of getting into debilitating debt is much greater for us than in cash economies kind of like what we had in the first century. One problem with having too much debt is that it seriously limits your freedoms, don't they? I mean, just stop and think about it. If any of you are in struggling with a lot of debt, you know what I'm talking about. Proverbs 22, 7 says, the borrower is slave to the lender. But it's not just financial freedoms that I think Proverbs is getting at and that I'm getting at. It's not just financial freedom that's taken away by debt, but the freedom of your time. When you are under too much debt, you're doing everything you can, working overtime, picking up extra shifts, maybe getting a second job to pay off that debt. Your schedule is eaten away by debt, time that could have otherwise been given to others in your life. So it's not just financial freedom that you lose. You lose the freedom of your time. But it's not just that. Debt also takes the freedom of your attention. You know what that's like. If it's just hanging over your head, it's the thing you think about. And as a result of that, your emotional energy is drained. So you're robbed of much more than money when you have too much debt. That, that's just the bottom common sense reality of life. Now, before I go on to say what Paul is getting at, I do want to say this. If that's you, if you are struggling under debt, if it is consuming you, if it's hanging over your life, it's the thing you think about, and it's controlling your life, come see us. We want to help you with that. We, okay, I'm going to be clear. I'm not going to pay off your debt. That's not what I'm meaning here. Um, we, we have people here who can give you the resources and the knowledge and the tools you need to take care of your finances so your debt serves you. You don't serve your debt, okay? As I recognize, in a group this size, there may be one or two people where that's you. You're drowning in it. Well, there are ways that you can get around that, and we have people here who would love to come alongside you and help equip you in that way. Now, that being said... The good news is this. The reality is that the Lord has paid the greatest debt any one of us face. Regardless of your financial situation, wherever you are, the gospel tells us that Christ has paid an insurmountable debt, a debt that not even Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, or Warren Buffett, with their combined resources, could pay. And that is your debt to a holy God. That debt has been paid in Full. This is what Jesus said from the cross to Telestai. It is finished. It literally means debt paid in full. The debt we owe to God has been paid, which is why Paul's kind of getting at as a practical matter. As Christians, we need to live as best as we can free from debt so that we can make good 
on love's debt. You see, Paul uses the language of debt, our obligation, something that we can all relate to, to make a larger point. That we all have an obligation, a debt, one that should always be hanging over our heads, one that we should be thinking about, one that should take our emotional energy and our time and our resources. And that is, if you are a Christian, the debt you have to love others well. And that's what Paul is getting at here. I'll never forget a, a kind of living example of this was in my community group a few years ago. I had a young man who, after community group was done, he was sharing with me how he was offered a promotion at, the, at his job, and he turned it down. Now, could he and his young wife use that money? Yes. So why did he turn the job down? Why did he say no? A, he knew that he and his family could get by on what they were making, and B, he knew that the promotion came with increased responsibilities and demands, and that would take away from his ability to pour into his family and other people at the church here at Christ Community. He says, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to make that transaction. So I turned the promotion down. Now, whether or not Romans 13, 8 through 10 was on his mind, at the forefront of his mind, it certainly was the way he was living his life. And he didn't do it kind of begrudgingly or any other that kind of like, I'm just trying to be a, a, the better Christian. He did it joyfully because he instinctually knew he has a debt to his Lord that he could never repay. But he wanted to free up his life to have the resources to be able to do that very thing. I mean, as I was talking to this young man standing in this living room, the thing I thought about, how blessed is his wife, huh? How blessed is his family going to be to have a father, a husband, who's thinking about life that way? There's a living example of what Paul is getting at here. It's the same with you and I. You see, the debt that we owe to God was paid by the very life of God himself. And as a result of that, we are indebted to him. This is Paul's logic here. Now, when I, mean, when I say that, trust me, friends, whatever payments you make in loving others for the rest of your life, it, that's just pennies on the dollar compared to what the debt was that you've been free, uh, forgiven of. Now, let me illustrate it this way. If, if I paid off any one of your mortgages, right? I, I don't know what the national average of mortgages are, but I'm sure it's quite a lot. If I paid off your mortgage entirely, would it be unreasonable of me to ask of you, here's all I want you to do. Every week after church, just take someone out to lunch. That's all I want you to do. I mean, you could take out someone or a family to an amazing lunch every week for 20 years, and it would still pale in comparison to the debt you've been forgiven of, wouldn't it? It's the same kind of reality. So let me give you a Admittedly, somewhat convoluted, but I think an accurate rephrasing of what Paul is saying here in these three verses. God paid off your debt, so keep yourself free from debt so you can pay back the debt that can never be paid back. Right? I'm Asian, so I like these like pithy sayings that sound profound or kind of confusing. But look at it, that's true. That's just what Paul's saying. God paid off your debt, so keep yourself free from debt so you can pay back the debt that can never be paid back. You see, Paul is trafficking in concepts of financial obligation and debt that we're all very familiar with to establish the truth of a moral obligation and debt that we're often not familiar with. As a matter of fact, three times in the book of Romans, this is the third time, but th two other times, Paul talked about the debt that we owe. It's the same word used in each situation, but Paul talks about our obligation three times in this book. 
Number one, because of the lordship of Christ, we are indebted to the whole world. As Paul says in Romans 1.14, because we are recipients of this grace of God, we have an obligation to the world to bring the gospel to the world. How are you at paying that debt, friends? Do you feel that obligation? Or are you just kind of cruising by in life? Thinking that God exists for you to get the mojo you need to get through. Do you realize you have an obligation to him? Now, never forget, um, <laughs> I was probably 24, 23, 24, driving to the gym at night. I think it was a Monday night, and I pull up to the gym. There are about a dozen kids on skateboards and bikes just hanging out. And I grabbed my gym bag, and I was just about to get out the door, and I felt it. Oh, no, I don't want to have to talk to those kids. I felt that's what God wanted me to do, an obligation to do it. I said, Lord, I just want to work out. It's been a long day driving the forklift. I want to work out, get some good rest. That's it. I don't want to have to talk to these kids. They're punks anyway. They won't listen. But, guys, I felt that obligation. So I got out. I thought, okay, I'm just going to do my thing and maybe I'll go back, get into my workout. And as I'm walking to them and they're looking at me because I'm getting closer and closer, I was hoping for a suave, cool way to open the conversation. The Shekinah glory would fall. They'd get saved. I'd go work out. I got nothing. And there's this awkward, they're staring at me. I'm staring at them. There might be a fight. Who knows? And I just said, guys, you're not going to believe this. But I was just sitting in my truck, and I really felt like the Lord wanted me to tell you about the gospel. Real real slick, right? (laughs) Immediately, five of them just skated off. (laughs) But others stayed. I didn't get a physical workout that night, but I got to work out some spiritual muscles as I shared with them an hour Because who in their right mind approaches a dozen teenagers smoking on skateboards and says, i got to tell you about Jesus? I don't feel that way all the time, don't get me wrong. But there was a sense, I have to do this. And it was probably around that time I was asking God to use my life. Well, there you go. That's what happens, right? Do you feel the obligation? We are all obligated. Maybe not that obviously, but we all have an obligation to share the gospel. If you've been a recipient of that, The lordship of Christ obliges you to share it with the world. Secondly, because of the holiness of Christ, Romans 8, 12 to 13 tells us, we are now debtors not to the flesh, but to the spirit, to live lives of the spirit. We are obligated to live lives of holiness because of the lordship of Christ, because of the gospel. How are you at paying that debt? Are you even paying interest on that? Are you even realizing that that bill is due? We are obligated. And third and finally, we see it in our passage this morning. Because of the love of Christ for us, we are indebted to love others well. And the order has to be this way. John talks about it in his epistles, 1 John 4, 19. We love, why? Because we've been loved. That's the way this works. A few weeks ago, we talked about Paul saying that the love of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, 14, the love of Christ compels him to act this way. How are you at paying that debt, at loving others well? If, if, you, just, if you don't know, here's a hint. Go back to Romans 12, 9 through 21. Paul gives 30 commands, 30 ways that we can make good on that debt. If you don't know, I don't know if I'm loving others well, go to Romans 12, 9 through 21. Just pick one of those and master it. 
And then maybe the next month, pick another one of them and master it. Start paying that debt. And then in verse 9, back in our passage of chapter 13, Paul lists several Old Testament commands regarding our responsibility to others. And this says something radically strange at the end of verse 10, that love is the fulfillment of the law. Now, if that doesn't sound strange to you, it might be because you've been reading your Bible a lot. But do you remember, can you remember when you first became a Christian? And none of this made sense. It was just weird Christian stuff, but you just knew this was hope. And so you were reading it and reading it. I remember when I read this, and I thought, this is why Christianity doesn't make sense. Because love and law do not go together, right? Now, as Christians, we get that because we understand that. But can you step back for a second and go, because when I think of law, I think of don't do this, don't do that, all the negatives, I get in trouble, and love seems much more positive, much more freewheeling, much more pleasurable. And so to say that love is a fulfillment of the law doesn't make sense to me. And I think by and large, that's the way people in the world kind of think about these two concepts. And so our misunderstand, our, uh, the fact that we don't understand how love and law relate we, we often get bizarre expressions like the one that's kind of common today. Love is love. Have you heard that one? Love is love. That's a common expression. I was talking to my daughter about this this, this weekend. And the expression love is love is meant to explain an, an acceptance of all types of love between all types of people. Right? So love is love. Explains all the types of love out there between all the types of people. And I remember talking to Anna. I said, one problem with that explanation it's that it's using the very word it's supposed to define in the definition. So it's kind of like if your kid asks you, Dad, what's an albatross? And you say with an air of authority and knowledge, well, an albatross is an albatross. <laughs> and it's at that point your kid knows you have no idea what you're talking about, but you're just trying to come off like you do. So the expression, love is love, it sounds deep, it sounds profound, it sounds insightful, but when you actually stop to think about it, you realize it sounds a lot like that question, what does a sound make, what is the sound of a one hand clapping? You've heard that. So here it is. One hand clapping, that's what it sounds like. Or does a tree, if a tree falls in the forest and no one's there to hear it, does it really make a sound? All those kinds of expressions, they sound profound, they sound insightful, but they're meaningless. Love, friends, has a certain form or shape that distinguishes it from lust, selfishness, or shallowness. Let me illustrate. Husbands, if you say to your wives, I love you, you better mean something a whole lot different than that when you say, I love in and out hamburger. It better mean something more defined when you use the same word. You see, that's the role that law plays with love. Love needs the law for its definition. Love, law needs love for its inspiration. Those two are really important. And one of the challenges in our society is we've untethered law and love and we're in a mess. You see, apart from law, love doesn't have a built-in moral compass, which is why expressions like love is love and the meaning behind it is meaningless. It's a belief, it's a naive belief in love's infallibility. That's not how that works. If you were to look around your world, and I'm sure if you thought about it, you have examples, 
There's a lot of love that goes horribly wrong in our society. There's a lot of, lo- lot of disordered loves out there. And that's because we've untethered these concepts of law and love. And when we're on the, when we're on the giving end of love, we want to define it however we want. But yet, have you noticed when someone's on the receiving end of love, they demand law. We demand love to be honest, to have integrity, to be loyal. We say that love should be caring, love should be sacrificial, love should be giving. Friends, all those demands and should be's is what? It's an expression of law. That language, whenever you say there ought to be this, there should be that, you are saying there has to be a moral law. There has to be law behind things that undergird our world. And so if you say love should be this, you believe in law. The question is what defines that law and who? You see, the Bible says that the law, and I don't mean the silly like traffic law. I'm not saying traffic laws are silly. I'm just saying the real important laws, like the moral laws that keep society together, is a reflection of the character and person of God put in concrete expression so that all creation knows it. We can depend on it. We can build our lives upon it. And as law is the fulfillment or love is the fulfillment of law, we can recognize when we see love and when we don't. And that's why law and love are together. Friends, have you ever thought about in, the Christian, in Christianity, the central metaphor, a central symbol, the cross, is a constant reminder to us how love and law are inseparably bound. The cross is a constant reminder that love and law go together. There is a shape to love. There is a boundaries to love. Love has commitments. Love is bound to what is beautiful, good, and true, not simply what's pleasing, easy, or self-gratifying. That is what love is. It's not defined by you or I. It's not defined by our society around us. Love is bound to the law of God, and the law of God is the love that every one of us craves and needs because there is no contradiction between God's law and God's love. They work together. You know a parent's love for their child, not because they don't have any rules, but by the kind of rules they have on their child is how you know their love. So loving our neighbor now makes total sense. It makes sense to me. It took a while, but it made sense how love is the fulfillment of law. The question, though, that, that I find is more germane to us, more practical, is how do we love our neighbors when everywhere we look, we're just surrounded by so much great need? Wherever you look, there's crisis, tragedy, heartache, brokenness, loneliness, I don't know about you, but I can get compassion fatigue. You know what I'm saying? I don't know what to do with all this anymore. Theologians and ethicists throughout the years, they've talked about something called moral proximity. Moral proximity. In other words, the the greater the connection, the greater the sense of obligation. That's a very helpful concept. I'll unpack that in a little bit. That this moral proximity, that the greater the connection, the greater the sense of obligation. The problem I find in our society, and problem with the, the media, whether it's legacy media or social media, is like the world's problems, all these massive problems, war, poverty, climate change, all that, is brought right to your face every day on a screen that you probably spend way too much time looking at. And you feel like you've got to do something about it. But the reality is, friends, 
you and I, we can't do anything about war, poverty, climate change. And so we kind of get a sense that, what do, why bother? But if you look at it differently, using the moral proximity, I can do something to, to bring peace to the war between my two friends or this family that I know of. I can meet the needs of a brother or sister in Christ in my church fellowship. I may not solve global poverty, but I can help meet this need. I use climate change, so i got to find a, something that goes with that. I can pick up after myself, right? Um, oh, I know, if you live in Mission Viejo, we got this bin with a green lid, and we're supposed to throw our old food in it. And we did that for a week, and our kitchen stank. So I went out and bought a food composter. So I compost my food, make the dirt, and I throw it in the backyard. So climate change. But my dog goes out and eats it because it's the old food. And he comes in and brings it all in the house. My point simply is, moral proximity is this. Just surround yourself with a small handful of people and start loving them well. None of us well, that I know of have jobs that affect foreign policy, uh, economics, or climate, environmental policy. But all of us can do these basic things. Surround yourself with a handful of people. I mean, you love them. And you love them well. Social brain theorists say that the human, average human brain can only manage at maximum 150 relationships. Doesn't matter how many followers or likes you have on whatever social media, you can only contain 150 relationships at any one time. And even that number 150, the emotional distance is far too great. And so they have concentric rings, 150, 50, 15, and 5 outside of your immediate family. So the social brain theory goes that you can only have meaningful relationships with 5, 15, maybe 50, and at the far end of associates, 150. Here's my question to you. If social brain theory is correct, and it sounds like it makes sense, if you are a member of this church, I hope the other members of this church are in one of those concentric rings. Are people in your community group in one of those rings? I hope they're not just in the 150. I hope they're more like in the 15. Are the people you're serving with in kids' ministry or students or whatever it is, are they in those rings? This social brain theory makes sense of the fact that 80% of the churches in America never get beyond 200 because it's hard to maintain a sense of community and emotional closeness at, at those numbers. So when you get a place like Christ Community Church where there's nearly 600 adults, and then if you throw in like our, our kids and our teenagers, we're bumping up to 800, we have to work a little harder. Now, some people get surprised, like, 600 adults, wow, it doesn't feel that way. Well, and that's a testimony to you guys, because I know a lot of you move towards one another to love people well. And so there's this, we have a sense of community disproportionate to the number of people who actually attend. And so they're always surprised to hear, wow, 600 adults and then almost 200 more with kids and students? That's pretty good. Well, the only reason it's pretty good is that we still feel like we have a community here. In our friends, in our transient culture or church hoppers culture, let me just suggest to you that if you're looking to build community, church membership is one of the best things you can do in a local church. We have 363 people in this church who said, you know what, I'm locking arms with you guys. I'm not going to be the unknown that comes in and goes out. I'm going to be accountable to you guys. I'm going to lock arms. We're going to do the one another's together. We're going to love the Lord and make much of Jesus together. Now, realistically, even amongst the 363 members, we, we're not all going to be in each other's 150, 50, 15, 5. That's just the reality of it. 
Because by definition, there's 363. We can't do that. But all of us together can love every one of us individually. And that's how that works out. And to emphasize the importance of this debt that Paul says that we have to pay, this debt of love, it's tightly bound, Paul says, to God's salvation history plan. And that's our second point here, verses 11 to 14. The day to love. Notice what he says. The hour has come to wake from sleep. Ah, friend, if you have been asleep, if you have not been paying off that debt, you still have a chance to do that. Paul says, wake up. Can I ask you an honest question? Are you sleeping? (laughs) Are you just like coasting on Christian civilities? You got this. You know what you need to say, what you need to do, but you're functionally asleep at the wheel spiritually. You're not hungry to know how to love people. You come in, you listen to the sermon, but you're not really paying attention of, okay, here's the word of the Lord, man. What do I get from this so I can apply it to my life, so I can change? James says, don't be hearers of the word only, but doers. Do you just come in and listen? You, you, You don't get any grace by osmosis here, right? You just being here does not, you don't get grace. It's the person that says, yeah, gotcha, gotcha, writing that down. This is what I'm going to do. Or are you asleep? I mean, some of you literally sleep. I see it, right? <laughs> and I'm tempted to call out, and I've told them I will, but I'm going to be gracious. I'm going to love them well, even though one's asleep right now. They're all looking. Who is it? Who is it? No, I'm just kidding. Are we asleep? Paul says, wake up. Notice three times in verses 11 and 12, Paul alludes to the urgency of time. He says, the hour has come. Salvation is nearer now. The night is far gone. The day is here. Friends, pay off your earthly debt so you can use your resources, more time, more energy, more focus, more attention to pay off your spiritual debt to love others well. That's Paul's driving point. Why? Because he says, salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Now, if you've been at Christ's communion, you know salvation it has three aspects to it. A past, a present, a future. Our justification in Christ, our sanctification in Christ, and our glorification in Christ. What Paul's talking about is that glorification. When it all wraps up, it is nearer now than when you first believed. Paul's message is simple. Pay on this debt now. Pay on this debt now because the great day of accounting is here. Pay that debt because the day of accounting is here. If you're a note taker, write down 2 Corinthians 5.10. Paul says, we're all going to stand before the bema seat of judgment. Interesting, a lot of translation says, for your deeds, good and evil. The problem is that that makes you think like maybe your salvation's in jeopardy. The word evil there is translated unusual because uh, it means like squander, trifle, a waste. Um, they usually use a different word to translate evil. So, it's, so I don't think it's translated. It's not saying your salvation, but... Did you just take opportunities when they came? Or did you just squander your life? Were you just living for things that don't matter? Yeah, you got salvation, but man, God God was throwing it to the numbers and you just kept fumbling it because you were just asleep. That's kind of the idea here. According to Martin Luther, the great reformer, there's only two days that matter. This day and that day. That's a great way to live. He says, there's only two days on his calendar that matters, today, this day, and that day. And he's going to live this day in light of that day. And that's how he went through his life. Paul's point is that Christ's coming is imminent. 
Uh, That may seem ironic because he said this 2,000 years ago, but Paul's not talking temporally. He's not talking time. He's talking in God's kind of apocalyptic timeline, in God's eschatological plan, the end time plan. The next thing on the docket is wrap this all up. There's nothing else that needs to happen. The next thing is Christ's consummation of all things. And either he will come for all Christians all at once, or he's going to come for each of us individually in death. And so, friends, every ache, every pain, every wrinkle, every gray hair, every funeral is a reminder to you that the time has come. The time has passed. Don't just complain about the new wrinkle or the ache. Realize that's God's gracious way to say, hey, psst, you're getting older. You're, going, you're not built for this life. I love the way the New Living Translation says it. How late it is. Time's already running out. I like that. In verses 11 and 12, Paul, notice he's kind of mixing his metaphors. Like he can't decide which one to go with, so, so, he's, so he's sti- which one to stick with. But the gist of this is to imagine someone waking from sleep. When you wake up from bed, you don't just go into your world in your pajamas. No, you dress according to the task at hand. And, and Paul says it here, I think it's in verse 12, wearing the armor of light. So this is where I think he's kind of mixing metaphors, sleep, and he's got a soldier thing. But here's how I think it works out. Um, um, Years ago, I was talking to a headhunter, a corporate headhunter. And he told me the advice he gives his clients when they go in for interviews is to dress for the job they want, not for the job that they have. And his point being is the way you're clothed changes the way you carry yourself and the way other people interact with you as well. I think that makes a lot of sense. Two weeks ago, I watched a movie with my wife. Um, Miss Harris Goes to Paris. Anyone see that movie? Yeah, okay. Uh, first hour, I got this guy. He raised his hand and he went, like, yeah, yeah we didn't trade in our man card because we watched that movie, right? It was like, Miss Harris Goes to Paris. It's a fantastic movie about a, a, widow, a war widow in 1957 who comes into a sum of money. And, and what she wants to do is she wants to use a sum of money and she spends the whole amount on a, on a Christian Dior dress. I don't know much about Christian Dior, but in the 50s, it was a lot more of a, um, we say in Hawaii, haimakamaka, like a elitist kind of fancy pants, rich person's, wealthy rich person's outfit, right? And so we did the, nu- the, the number crunching. 500 pounds, which was, was in 1957, is $15,000 in today's money. So she was going to spend $15,000 on this one dress. And I recognize the irony that I started talking about financial responsibility and that this is not a good illustration, but the point is she wanted to buy this Christian Dior dress. And the whole movie is about her getting this fantastic outfit. Because here was the thing. The beauty of it was it wasn't about the style or the fabric or the sequence or the brand name. The dress embodied hope and beauty and glamour. And, and if I'm re- watching it through a Christian worldview, which we should do, bring to everything, the dress was like the inbreaking of the new creation into the dull, drab existence of an older cleaning woman. That, that's what it embodied. And towards the end of the movie, when she finally gets to wear this dress, she walks differently, she talks differently, she acts differently, not fake, but better. And everyone interacts with her differently. They treat her differently. They speak to her differently. It's just this whole different dynamic. Not fake, but as if they were interacting with somebody who was bringing in the hope of, a, of better things. 
And so what happens is with this woman, just because of the clothes, she's no longer this widowed, drab, cleaning lady, but the bell of the ball. It's a fantastic movie. Guys, you want to bless your wives? Go watch Miss Harris Goes to Paris, right? You want to bless them? Enough with the action movies. They've seen enough of that. Go watch this one. They're going to love it, and it's just got this wonderful message. Well, that's what Paul's going with here in verse 12. He says, put on the armor of light. And this is where I thought, well, what's the connection? Because this seems odd of what he said in verses 8 through 10 to now about this armor of light. Because everyone there in that time would have understood what a Roman centurion looked like. After all, this is a letter to the Romans. They knew what Roman centurions looked like. Just in our day and age, a soldier does not get up and just go into the field. He's got his BDUs on. Right? He's got his battle dress uniform on. He's got his plate carrier strapped to his chest. He's got his tactical belt on, make sure his rig's fitted to it. He makes sure the safety's on on his, on his rifle. His ammo pouches are loaded. His IFAC's secured. Then he goes out to what Paul says, walking properly, verse 13. I thought, how strange that Paul would use the metaphor of a soldier when he's talking about love. And then I thought, no, that's probably because Paul understands how hard this is going to be. This is what Paul is asking of us, what the Lord is asking of us, is hard. And that's why the metaphor of a soldier is a perfect fit. It's hard for all of us, regardless of our personality types. If you're an introvert like I am, I'd much rather be with my dog and my motorcycle and my books. But you know what? The call to me is to love God's people and to love people well. And it's not easier for introverts because a lot of times introverts, you may think they love people when in fact a lot of times introverts or extroverts, extroverts use people because they feel good from the people around them. So if you're an extrovert, stop using them so that you feel your energy, but start loving them well and using that energy to serve people. So whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, we all have the same call to love people well. And Romans 12, 9 through 21 defines what that looks like. Let me end with this, friends. What does it mean or look like for you, and your life is different than mine, to put on Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires? What is that going to look like for you? Verse 11 is a strong key, I think. Ask yourself this, are you awake? Are you intentional about living with the armor of light on? Or are you just coasting? Right? Are you awake? Or are you on autopilot? Are you aware that your debt has been paid so that you can repay others in kind? Are you aware of that? Are you aware of how difficult it will be to love others as Christ wants us to? Sometimes it just takes a little bit of forethought. What can you do for others in light of what Christ has done for you? And notice that progression is important. John says we love, again, because he loved us. It's only until you understand that pattern that you have the resources and the ability and the desire to love well. Have you experienced the love of God for you? Have you experienced the love of God? You can answer that by knowing how much you love the people of God. If there is no love for the people of God, do not be so confident about your profession that you've experienced the love of God. Because a love for God always results in a love for his people. Every time you go to the Gospels, you will see that connection. One of my favorite passages is Peter's reconciliation in John 21. 
Every time he talks to Peter, do you love me, Peter? Yes, I do, Lord. Then love my people. Do you love me, Peter? I do, Lord. Feed my sheep. Do you love me, Peter? Yes, Lord, I told you I love you. Then lay down your life for my people. There is a direct correlation between our profession of love for God to his people. As I said before, loving Jesus is easy. You're an idiot if you don't. I'm just going to be honest. Loving me, loving you, that's a whole other ball of wax. And that's where the Christian faith is proved. Do you know what it is to have your debt erased? To have the debt of gratitude that only those who know the blessing of forgiveness feel. That's real. Today's the day. We do this not out of guilt, but out of a gospel-fueled gratitude. Friends, what will you do to pay off this debt this week? What will you do to put on Christ and make no provision for the flesh this week? Oh, no one, anything, anything at all except for love. Let's pray that God can give us, help us do that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. And Lord, for your grace to change us, to transform us. Father, it is easy to love you. How could we not? But the real test is in loving each other. Father, we pray we do not hide behind religiosity or cultivated Christian civility or niceties. You don't call us to be nice. You made us new for a reason. Help us to crucify the flesh that we might learn to love people well the way you've indebted us to do so. And I recognize I pray something that's impossible, but apart from you, nothing's impossible. So I ask that you give us your spirit in, in abundance, that we might take your word and not just be hearers only, but think this is how I will be different as a result of hearing the word of God preached. This is what I will do differently. The time is short, Lord. We do not have long. Help us not to be distracted by what matters least from the thing that matters most. We ask that you do it by your spirit, for your glory and our good. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.